Hello and welcome to Going Viral. I am David Lim. It is Monday the 12th of October. In today's podcast, Dr. Amesh Adelja, an American expert on emerging infectious diseases, pandemic preparedness and biosecurity, and a senior scholar at the Center of Health Security at the John Hopkins University speaks on the complex and difficult public health issues arising from President Trump's recent COVID-19 infection and the sequelae of his very rapid recovery and his emboldened approach following his illness. Before we start, I'd like to encourage you to register for the next webcasts, where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free. You get CPD points and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can listen to these podcasts on the HealthEd website, or you can download the HealthEd app and access many other learning resources as well. Dr. Amesh Adalja, could you tell us a bit about yourself, please? Sure. My name is Amish Adalja. I'm a senior scholar at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security and a practicing infectious disease, emergency medicine, and critical care physician. I've been working on pandemic preparedness, emerging infectious disease issues, uh, basically my my whole career, and uh, work on a lot of things with hospital preparedness, thinking about what types of pathogens can cause pandemics, how to prevent them, trying to really just uh, work on improving infectious disease response capabilities as well as working on issues where infectious disease intersects with national security. You've got a big task ahead of you, and I'm sure a lot of the dynamics happening at the moment may actually not be helping your job. So let's start. President Trump's personal COVID-19 journey and his seemingly emboldened approach coming out of that, what do you think this is doing to the efforts of the public health doctors and specialists? I think it's what we feared, that, it's, that it is making it much harder because many of us were hoping that the president's infection with COVID-19 would go well and he would gain an appreciation for what this virus represents. But clearly that doesn't seem to be the case as he is touting his victory over the virus, again, running to misinformation campaigns about how this is comparable to influenza. He's also talking about the fact that uh, that his journey through it is something that you know illustrates that people don't need to worry about it. They don't need to let it dominate their lives. They shouldn't fear it. And I think that makes it much harder because through this pandemic, we've had half of the country basically not really taking this seriously by taking the wrong actions, by not putting in place common sense precautions, by spreading misinformation and lies, by not being helpful when it comes to contact tracing. Lots and lots of examples of how the rhetoric in the country has influenced people's behavior. And this is likely going to have that same effect. And it's going to be, it's unfortunate because there are many of us in the field that were genuinely worried about what would happen to the president being an elderly obese man that was hospitalized with COVID-19 requiring supplemental oxygen. Um, so, so it is kind of, it, it is frustrating that we're still back. We went right back to square one 
when it comes to his misinformation and, and lying about this pandemic. President Trump is pretty much raring to go back onto the campaign trail. It's not long since he had his diagnosis and his discharge from hospital, claims that he's no longer contagious. I just wonder what are the public health and possibly legal implications of him going back on a campaign trail? The, the issue is when does he become no longer contagious? And right now, as we speak, he still is contagious. But if you classify his case as a mild or a moderate case, there's a 10-day period of self-isolation that's recommended. That 10-day period should be ending on Saturday. So in about a little over 24, about 24 hours from now. If that's the case, I think there's not an issue with him interacting with other people. And I, I have just... Uh, discontinued isolation procedures on some of my patients as well after a 10-day period. If he has what's called a severe case, we sometimes self-isolate for 20 days. Again, it's hard to say whether he had a moderate case or a severe case because of the opaqueness with his medical team. However, the, the White House physician has written a letter saying that, that it was a, a 10-day self-isolation period was sufficient. You know, I think a lot of people don't have confidence in that, so it's going to be not the usual thing when someone is discontinued from self-isolation because we know that that, that, that physician has been misleading at best and, and maybe kind of obfuscatory at, at worst when it comes to the, the president's health. So, so I do think that this is something people are going to debate for a while, but in general, I think that 10 days is sufficient. Um, what we also worry about is his campaign rallies in general tend to be mass gathering events where there is not much social distancing, where there's not much face, face, uh, face covering use where people are yelling and cheering, uh, which we know can spread viruses. And so I think that those have their own separate issue. Um, one is coming to, to my hometown in, in Pittsburgh uh, on, uh, on Monday. So, so this is something that's always a challenge for public health when, when he has a, a mass gathering in, in, a, in a given city. And we know that the White House is really a hotspot now for infection. So you have to remember he doesn't travel alone. He travels with an entourage. And how many of those individuals are exposed or incubating uh, we don't know because there's really over two dozen cases linked to, to the White House uh, cluster. So, so this is something that I think everybody has to think about when, when they invite the president into town for the, the next, uh, next few uh, weeks. You've actually segued into something quite important here because uh, whilst the White House itself is a COVID-19 hotspot, uh, we understand that the Pentagon itself has been pretty much affected. And, and some of the officials have been quarantined. What are the issues happening now and how seriously are these scenarios being entertained and how well are they planned for? I think it's almost out of a fiction book that you would have the president hospitalized with, with a, a new novel pandemic virus and have the top leaders of the military, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, all under self-quarantine because of exposures. Nobody really would even imagine that the United States would allow a, a pandemic or an emerging infectious disease to spiral out of control that much uh, to, to impact the, the highest levels of government. And I think it's important to remember it didn't have to be that way because the, the White House completely has flouted any of the common sense recommendations that are in place for, for being able to kind of engage with other people during this pandemic. And this is completely a self-inflicted occurrence and it was completely predictable that it happened uh, because of the way they had handled this. So, so I do think this is part of what, what a pandemic's impact is, that it has this cascading, imp that it has this cascading ripple. 
that can impact society much largely, like, for example, having our top military leaders under self-quarantine. We know the National Security Advisor, Robert O'Brien, was infected with COVID uh, a couple of months ago. We've seen top government leaders, senators as well, and, and congressmen be infected, governors be infected. Uh, so, so this is something that does bring into questions, you know, how efficiently can you run government in a pandemic? And if you go back historically to the George Washington administration, they struggled with very similar things with the yellow fever uh, epidemic that was occurring in Philadelphia at the time, and Philadelphia was the nation's capital uh, at that time, where they could not really convene Congress, where they had a lot of issues. And, and that got people at that time thinking about infectious disease and their impact on government. And that's why we have so many measures. But the, the point is, those measures are only as good as when you implement them. And if you openly flout them and think that they're unnecessary, uh, it really will uh, give you this result because biologically, the virus is going to do what the virus does. Uh, and what we need to do is use our, 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 our minds to actually solve the problems of the virus, not basically put our minds in suspension and evade the fact that we're in a pandemic. Amesh, we also hear that House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is supporting a bill to give Congress a role in determining whether the President of the United States may be forced out of office because he's not capable of doing his job. So the question is, A, what is the likelihood that there may be significant support for this bill? And the second question is, if it is actually most likely to fail, what is the strategy behind this? And what is the message being sent to the Americans and to the rest of the world? Well, there has been there have been efforts from probably the beginning of this administration to to use this type of technique. I don't know how successful it w will be. I, I think that we we have certain guarantees in the Constitution. For example, there's an amendment in the Constitution for when the president cannot uh, discharge his duties that a majority of the cabinet and the vice president can remove the president from from his duties. Uh, and the, sa the same can be done by a committee appointed by Congress, if, if that's the case. So there are mechanisms. I don't think it will get to that. But the fact that, it, that people worry about this thing and think about this just shows you what kind of a low this pandemic has brought our politics and our daily day li day to day life in the United States. Yes. And, and we do, as I said earlier, watch with in intense interest because um, it, it is really just a, such a dynamic and fluid situation. Um, moving on to a different question now, Amesh, what do you make of the Great Barrington Declaration? Uh, I wonder, is it gaining traction in America? What specific part of that are you interested in hearing about? Mm. The, the part that they're really looking at, isolating the vulnerable and allowing all the young, healthy, normal people to lead a normal life and widely open up the economy. So I think that there's a couple of things that are mixed into that, and, and that's why I wanted to ask you which one, because each of the aspects is, is in its own right almost a different proposition. Uh -huh. do, we need to, do we need to quarantine the vulnerable? Do the vulnerable need to continue to shelter in place and be very mindful of their contacts? Yes, the answer is yes, that's, a, that's true, but not all of the vulnerable are in nursing homes and in senior care centers. We have people that live in the community. We have people that are younger than the target age group of 60 or so that have diabetes, hypertension. So there are vulnerable people that are in, that are in the community that are very hard to actually get to get to a point where they're completely isolated and not not intermixing with the other population. The other thing is that young people are not necessarily always spared the consequences. While it is true young people do not get hospitalized or die that much, we do know that they can get sick and some of them do have vulnerable conditions like diabetes or asthma or obesity. 
and, and there are the, there is the issue of long haul symptoms that you have to think about. So it's not just an easy dichotomized decision where, where you young people, it's fine to get old people. No, uh, it's a little bit more complicated than that. So, so I do think that if you're, I think it is essential that we protect vulnerable populations and that we put in place plans to, to keep them from getting infected and especially in our nursing homes and, and long-term care facilities and senior housing centers, because we know that that has been a, uh, this is, that has been a major challenge that's been devastating um, to, to that population. And we have m many mistakes that were made early on in the pandemic where, for example, governors in states like Pennsylvania and New York for forced nursing homes to take these patients after they were no longer needing hospitalization and that allowed the virus to spread like wildfire in those situations and, and killed a lot of people. So, so that we need to do. I do think that having the economy open and having people being able to, to, to be productive and pursue their, their business interests is important because the economy at the end are, is people's lives and if we don't produce anything there is no stuff and we won't be able to, to survive as a society. So I don't think it has to be a false alternative. I think it's probably not the best way to say, let's let the virus run rampant in young people. Um, I think if you're going to do this, let's if I were to do this in my own declaration, I would say, yes, protect vulnerable populations. Everybody that's vulnerable still needs to shelter in place. We need to be really ironclad at nursing homes. Younger people, we have to give them the tools to be able to go about their lives in this okay. pandemic. And even and if they get infected, that they that we have, a, we're not just allowing them to just go out there at a massive chickenpox party. So that means that we have to test, trace, and isolate. That means you have to be able to put in place a system where you're still contact tracing and trying to avoid those infections in the younger population. And when they do occur, that you test them, you contact trace them, and you isolate them for 14 days. If you couple that with the fact that the vulnerable populations are are uh, protected, you have a better strategy than just allowing it to basically try and quote unquote achieve herd immunity in a younger population, which is not going to be something you can do without causing a lot of damage. So I think that's a better way to think about it. And, and, and I do agree about the issues with closing down economies that that's not the correct thing to do. It's the wrong thing to do. There are better ways to use precision guided public health, but only when you actually have the political will to develop a test trace and isolate strategy, which many countries maybe outside of Taiwan really never did that well. Actually, that's a very good point because one of the uh, aims of the declaration was to aim for herd immunity, but I did not read much about the um, test, trace and isolate uh, part. I think you're quite right that without it, it is not such a great idea. Yes, there's going to be a lot of collateral damage when you do that. And uh, I, th I think it's not something that's out of reach to do testing, tracing and isolating. It's just in the United States, there's been the, a horrible job basically since January of trying to, to build this capacity because now in October, we still have testing shortages. We still have long waits. We still have long turnaround times. So this isn't, uh, this is something that we have uh, failed miserably at executing uh, from the very beginning. And there's not even the political will to fix it because again, here the president's rhetoric, if you test more, you'll find more cases and we don't want to run up the scoreboard. And the other side of the coin to Amesh is that the leaders of many countries throughout the world have been really holding up the vaccines as if it's just going to happen very shortly and also as if it's going to be both very safe and highly effective. However, from what I hear, none of that may be true. It's probably not going to be soon and we have no idea about its efficacy and therefore we are not even sure how well global economies can open up. My question is, how do you think 
the American people will feel when the reality is that the vaccines are not the silver bullet. I think there's going to be some disappointment because there has been some misunderstanding about how vaccines will will actually operate, at least the first generation vaccines. So I do think we're going to need to do a lot of uh, public health detailing and, and speak to the American public about what these vaccines can and can't do and when they can expect them. I do think, though, that the first generation vaccines are going to significantly tame this virus, meaning that while they might not be providing sterilizing immunity the way the measles vaccine does, they are likely to prevent you from getting into trouble with this virus. So if you're vaccinated, you may be less, much less likely to be hospitalized, much less likely to die from the virus. And that's going to be a huge value because that will change the risk perception and how people think about this. Because if there is something that, that can lessen the morbidity and mortality, even if it doesn't prevent infections completely, I think that makes it a much easier prospect to go back to some semblance of normal life. But I think it will probably take a second generation vaccine, something maybe that's at the back of the pack that's more traditional that ends up winning, winning the day in the end and becoming the childhood vaccine that everybody now gets. Because what we'll need then is a vaccine that prevents infection and decreases the force of infection. And that may, may take some time. But I do think just having a first generation vaccine is going to change the way we approach it. And we will start seeing people be much more comfortable doing things and uh, and mixing with people because they will not think of this as something as as, as a health, consequential to their health as it is in the absence of a vaccine or the absence of a, a highly effective treatment. And the last question, Amesh, is how is America faring overall with the pandemic? And where do you see uh, physicians like yourselves pouring your energies into what strategies and what directions? I think we've done miserably with this pandemic. We have over 200,000 dead. We have an economy that is really not working. We, we have conspiracy theories flying all over the country, uh, including coming from the, the highest levels of government. We, have our, the, we also have that same highest level of government in, in some ways completely compromised by this virus. We have probably one of the, at least the, the, the most level of political discord that I can remember in, in my life. So, so I think we've done really, really terribly with this pandemic. And I think that the goal for physicians, it depends on what you're doing, what your skill level. For someone like me, I, wa I want to speak to the public about the truths and the, and the falsehoods about this pandemic, uh -huh. give, them, give them common sense actions that they can use to reduce the harm that this virus can take in their lives. I also, at the same time, want policymakers and those in government to listen about what the actual right actions to take uh -huh. and how to how to optimize our response and how to build the capacity that countries like Taiwan had a long time ago. Uh, I think that also it's important that we use this pandemic and the opportunity that it's created to actually fix some of these problems in our pandemic preparedness that have been longstanding. So there is an opportunity to increase the resiliency because we cannot let this ever happen again. Amesh, I want to thank you for your time and I do wish you and all your colleagues well because you have a very important task ahead of you and I certainly hope that you have very important ears that are attentive to your message. Thank you. Have a great day. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcasts where you can always catch a high quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free. 
you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthed.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.